Well, good day. I'm actually um, continuing what I've been looking at. I'm looking at uh, Daniel. It's fine. I'm looking at uh, Daniel Ingram's. I'm talking about Daniel Ingram, but um, also my own study. Uh, just the last thing I was looking at was the Alaya Vijnana, the storehouse consciousness. Because I really couldn't find anything on the Amala Vijnana, that perfected consciousness. But as you heard, I mean, I have some books. I've had some realizations. Uh, wondering why maybe I thought I was wrong about simple things like, for example, the Alaya Vijnana being... Uh, well, something that I learned at a very young age. So, here I am in the Mahatma Letters to A.P. Sinet. These were written by Tibetan Lamas uh, well over a hundred years ago. And I quote, No Orientalist has ever suspected the truths contained in it. These are these letters back and forth. And he says, You are the first Western man outside Tibet to whom it is now explained. So, I'm just going to read it, because at first, it seemed like it was pointing towards the Amal, uh, the Alaya Vijnana. And then it was pointing to the Amala Vijnana. So the two, the Alaya Vijnana is the storehouse of our personality, our cells, uh, where we lay these karmic seeds that uh, grow into uh, effect, right? Cause being the karma, effect is the result. Right? So here's the question to a Lama about the nature of self. What is the self? Um, and again, I'm not currently looking at the nature of self on a day-to-day -day basis. What I'm actually looking, because I'm looking at um, the Alaya Vijnana, uh, the storehouse of latent impressions that's present in the Vedanta, in the Vedic, missing in the Theravadin, supposedly, and then present again in the Mahayana. But what I've come across is a confusion. Uh, they're uh, conflating, pardon my ignorance here, uh, but they're confusing the comparison of the Tathagata Garva, again, Tathagata being the one that, you know, thus come one, the one that knows, the one that understands, or the teacher, so uh, the Buddha. So Garva being a storehouse. Um, that's a storehouse of Buddha nature. Perfected nature is something different. At least from my perspective. I didn't see... Um, a problem till I started to look at these because we discuss and you'll read you'll hear it when we're reading this section this is written well over a hundred years ago explaining this essentially this exact same question what they were asking in the Theravadin is this uh, switch uh, at uh, any of these periods what the Tibetans call the Bardo but these are these between states so we commonly, again, with the Bardo Thadul being the Tibetan Book of the Dead, we tend to think of this as 
um, the between states of life to death and death to rebirth and the between states. But there's also the between states of being awake, being asleep, uh, and then the between states of awake and sleep. This is important because you're going to hear that there is no difference between the Hindu or the Vedic perspective of um, arguably this perfected nature, which I argue is the Amala Vijnana, not the Tathagatagarbha. The Buddha nature is something separate. I argue the, the Amala Vijnana, this perfected state, is the same state that we talk about when you're able to eliminate all of these taints that uh, make up the self. You'll hear in it. Uh, the language is a little bit different. Keep in mind, this is uh, and this is a uh, hundred some years ago. Uh, a lot of language is being spoken by uh, both back and forth. So again, uh, you have to read into it, uh, the meaning and not specifically the words. So for me, you're going to hear the discussion that the self is just like the Vedic uh, a universal self, a oneness, thus equanimity that we're to achieve, thus eliminating the self because we no longer grasp to the self. We no longer, uh, we've emptied out that storehouse. Okay, so I'm just going to read here. So this is from the Mahatma Letters to A.P. Sinet. I'm actually on page 158 of a specifically um, uh, an edition from the Theosophical Society Press. This particular letter, I won't even bother. If you're interested, just send me a message and I'll give you exactly which letter I was talking about. So this was question six of this letter. What emerges at the end of all things is not only pure and impersonal spirit, but the collective personal remembrances skimmed off every new fifth principle in the long series of being. Just prior to this, uh, the fifth principle is talking about like a jiva, one of these these uh, individuals or a suit. Um, he goes on and says, And if at the end of all things, say in some million of millions years hence, spirit will have to rest in its pure, impersonal non-existence, as the one or the absolute, still there must be some good in the cyclic process, since every purified ego has the chance in the long interims between objective being upon the planets to exist as a Dian Chohan. So <laughs> it's interesting how they write some of these in here, but this would be uh, a fully uh, realized individual. From the lowest, uh, Deva Chani. I love how you're hearing. Uh, a mixture of Tibetan and uh, Sanskrit, or even, uh, anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, again, talking about regular individual. To the highest planetary, enjoying the fruits of all its collective lives. Right, and again, I interrupt too much, but I'm going to start over. So number six, what emerges at the end of all things is not only pure and impersonal spirit, but the collective personal remembrances skimmed off every new fifth principle in a long series of being. And if at the end of all things, say in a million of millions years hence, spirit will have to rest in its pure impersonal non-existence as the one or the absolute, 
Still, there must be some good in the cyclic process, since every purified ego has the chance, in the long interims between objective being upon the planets, to exist as a Dhyan Chohan, from the lowest Devachani to the highest planetary, enjoying the fruits of its collective lives. Okay. This, uh, we'll forget about some references here uh, to uh, um, awakening, but you can hear it here. At the end of all things, spirit will rest in its pure, impersonal non-existence as one, the absolute. Right? If that's not speaking to Brahman nature... I mean, you can absolutely speak to Buddha nature, sure. But I actually feel when we're talking about talking right here about pure and impersonal spirit, where the collective personal remembrances are skimmed off. And that's the Amala, Vijnana. And I'll go on and he says, but... What is spirit, pure and impersonal, per se? Is it possible that you should not have realized yet our meaning? Why such a spirit is a non-entity, a pure abstraction, an absolute blank to our senses, even to the most spiritual. It becomes something only in union with matter. Hence, it is always something, since matter is infinite and indestructible and non-existent without spirit, which in matter is life. So here you, you hear the, uh, the Yoga Karen perspective of, uh, or honestly, you hear the Vedanta's perspective, the Yoga Karen perspective, Tibetan perspective, the idea that uh, thought is action and action is thought, that Blavatsky uh, quip, was an oversimplification, but it was truly giving you this idea that uh, thought forms are no different than physical forms, right? And so the self is no different than the temporary nature of all things, uh, consciousness being the same. So let's see where I was at. Pardon me here. All right, so... Separated from matter, it becomes the absolute negation of life and being, whereas matter is inseparable from it. Ask those who offer the objection whether they know anything of life and consciousness beyond what they now feel on earth. What conception can they have, unless natural-born seers, of the state and consciousness of one's individuality after it has separated itself from gross earthly body? What is the good of the whole process? So he goes on, so hold on, so I'll stop there. Um, very important aspect here to understand. Right? So we've talked about this embodied consciousness. And I talked about upakara, right? That self is that which operates uh, close at hand, uh, in relation to what's close at hand. So you take away what's close at hand in the self, uh, no longer uh, exists. But at the same time, it's also giving an idea that uh, by the nature of self, uh, it gives form to everything as well. And he goes on uh, to talk about here, what is 
the good of the whole process of life on earth, you may ask them in your turn if we are as good as pure unconscious entities before birth, during sleep. There's that example that just like the uh, the Vedic, the Vedantins, they believe that in sleep, uh, in that bardo of sleep, we once again allow that um, construct of the self uh, to no longer, uh, I'll see, you know, it doesn't melt away per se. We no longer grasp at it or give it form. Uh, and it melts away in sleep. He goes on and say, before birth, during sleep, and to the end of our career. So again, says, what is the good of the whole process of life on earth, you may ask, in your turn, if we are as good as pure, unconscious entities before birth, during sleep, and at the end of our career. Right. So there's the idea that uh, before birth, you're a perfected being, this uh, amala vijnana. And sleep, you're even uh, this perfect being at one with all. Can, you can think uh, garba, but that's where I think it's problematic. Because if you think of this perfected spirit, this perfected being, and uh, uh, to be one with this, uh, this uh, achievement, I know it's not an achievement, but knowing in the separation of the two uh, being important, is strictly what I wanted to to put forth here. He goes, um, Is it not death, according to the teachings of science, followed by the same state of unconsciousness as the one before birth? He says, Is not death, according to the teachings of science, followed by the same state of unconsciousness as the one before birth? So again, um, strictly very... Um, Atheistic type science, I guess, at the time, being what, what about 150 years ago, certainly uh, not believing in uh, a soul is what we're getting at here, right? The negation of a soul, uh, which arguably has kind of impacted Buddhism since, right? But he says, does not life when it quits our body, become as impersonal as it was before it animated the fetus? Life, after all, the greatest problem within the ken of human conception is a mystery that the greatest of your men of science will never solve. In order to be correctly comprehended, it has to be studied in the entire series of its manifestations. Otherwise, it can never be not only fathomed, but even comprehended in its easiest form, life. As a state of being on this earth, it can never be grasped so long as it is studied separately and apart from universal life. So once again, here we're talking about not Buddha nature, but this universal oneness, that equanimous nature, right? Perfected state. To solve the great problem, one has to become an occultist. At the time, um, that would be a term referencing someone who was a spiritualist, someone who was working at solving these. Uh, so not a scientist, uh, but a scientist uh, in the um, spiritual realm. It says to become an occultist, to analyze and experience with it personally. 
in all its phases as life on earth, life beyond the limit of physical death, mineral, vegetable, animal, and spiritual life, life in conjunction with concrete matter, as well as life present in the imponderable atom. Let them try and examine or analyze life apart from organism and what remains of it. Simply a mode of motion, which, unless our doctrine of the all-pervading, infinite, omnipresent life is accepted, though it be accepted on no better terms than a hypothesis only, a little more reasonable than their scientific hypotheses, which are all absurd, has to remain unsolved. Right? So again, there's that strata. You can't know for sure. Same as the joke I make about, I mean, anyone who would claim to be an atheist, you would have to have absolute knowledge uh, to claim such. Otherwise, it's hubris. We will say that it is and will remain forever. Oh, hold on here. I missed a spot. I apologize. Uh... So, shall they object? Well, we will answer them by using their own weapons. We will say that it is and will remain forever demonstrated that since motion is all-pervading and absolute rest inconceivable, that under whatever form or mask motion may appear, whether as light, heat, magnetism, chemical affinity, or electricity, all these must be but phases of one— and the same universal omnipotent force, a Proteus, they bow to as the great um, unknown. And we simply call the one life and the one law and the one element. The greatest, the most scientific minds on earth have been keenly pressing forward towards a solution of the mystery, leaving no bypath unexplored, no thread loose or weak in this darkest of labyrinths for them. And all had to come to the same conclusion, that of the occultists when given only partially, namely, that life in its concrete manifestations is the legitimate result and consequence of chemical affinity. As to life in its abstract sense, life pure and simple, well, they know no more of it today than they knew in the incipient stage of their royal society. They only know that organisms in certain solutions previously free from life will spring up spontaneously. He goes on and on. I probably should have cut that off a little earlier. Um, he goes on and he's making his point of, um, well, twofold. One, it's interesting at the hubris that science had then and now that they have an understanding of anything. And he's also pointing out the absolute need to be certain of your doubt. I don't know. So, uh, I just thought I'd share that little section. It's actually only, what, two pages of a very large tome, a good 500 pages long. Uh, this has to be some of the purest teachings. Obviously uh, tainted to a certain degree by the humans that played with it, but I thought I'd just share that uh, for me. <laughs> 